Welcome to another episode of Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is my trusty sidekick, Derek. Hello. Uh, another good week, Derek. I've uh, been doing a lot of things. Uh, you've just been working, I um, guess. Yeah, I've just been working. <laughs> yeah, not me. I've been gallivanting everywhere. Um, gallivanting. How is that done? Well, you just leave home. <laughs> don't come back for a while. <laughs> don't tell anybody what you're doing. And they just say, what were you doing? I was out gallivanting. Gallivanting. Um, no, I've been doing a, lot of, doing a lot of stuff with my kids, it seems. Um, well, I told you, Mackenzie and I, we went on the canoe trip to the French River this summer, and he really yes. enjoyed it. Yes, yes. And uh, got a friend that plays in a punk rock band, so the two of us went down this weekend and uh, checked out a few punk rock, Canadian punk rock bands, and uh, which, you know, surprisingly is, there is quite the Canadian punk rock scene. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Check that out. And you know what was good about it? The best thing about it? I bought a first round of beers for the two of us. And then I said, hey, you want another one? He goes, yeah, I'll get it. Has like, <laughs> kid ever bought you beer before? No. He's got a job. He wow. Can go to, he's drinking age. So we go to the bar. And he's, no, don't worry, Dad, I'll go grab you a beer. And he paid for it and everything. Wow. I know, eh? Wow. And you're how, how many years till that happens yeah, for you? Yeah, they're three and six. Yeah. But what they did do was uh, I have some camping lights, little LED things, and they arranged them in the shape of a campfire, and they're in the live middle of the room tonight roasting marshmallows, telling me, Daddy, we're camping. We're roasting marshmallows. It's not too shabby. So they're pretty anxious to go camping. Yeah. Well, what are you waiting for? Well, Apparently a, they're waiting for dad. We're, we're Right now we're kind of, November's kind of booked up. So we're kinda maybe potentially looking at December now going camping. Well, you know what? That's what I'm finding is you figure, okay, well, everything's settling down for the summer and we're going to be able to go do this, that, and the other thing. or go for some hikes, maybe do some late fall camping and, you know, hit hit the water before the... It all freezes over and all that. And all of a sudden you're looking at your calendar and you're like, no, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. And there's no time left. November's, <laughs> no, I know, November's gone. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> Fortunately, me and my wife, we like the winter camping thing and we're going to get the kids into it. I do have a, uh, a really thick, uh, one of those green U.S. Army tents, 10-man yeah. tent. And I've got a couple of wood stoves, so I'll just take a wood stove in the tent and we'll probably go up to Mew Lake. And we're considering either doing a yurt and uh, and the or the tent or just the tent on its own. And uh, depending on the weather at the time, we'll probably bring a canoe with us. It's just that time of year, don't want to risk dropping a three and a six-year-old into the lake. It'd be too cold for them to, for that. But uh, I might go out solo paddling. Yeah, you know, and that's the big thing. The thing I like about yurts is the floor. Whereas you're opposed up, to, yeah. you're elevated, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a hard Insulated, floor to walk yeah. on, right? Uh, well, mind you, the ones at Mew Lake, if you can get one, um, are uh, electric heating too. Yes, yeah, there's baseboard <laughs> heating in them, yeah. Yeah, so, you you know, at the end of the a nice day of hiking and stuff like that, you can get back to a nice the warm, yeah. crank the heat sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know what? It'll be fun. Everybody I know has the green... Army surplus tents. It's because they're cheap. But no one has a white one. And you know what? I've wanted a white one for as long as I can remember. And every time I look at them, it's like it, 1800 bucks or whatever. Well, you can't, you never see it's, them used either. See, the thing I don't like about the green ones is it's dark. It's too dark. Even it doesn't the, let any it light in. full on sun and yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah but the, at least the, the white ones let some, some light in. Exactly. Right, because yes. you're, otherwise you're in there during yeah. the day even. You've got to have lanterns exactly. or headlamps on. And, right? and it is a drawback. I do consider that. And I've gone I've gone in with his tent and, and with uh, Marcus uh, Rubino. We've gone with him a couple times. And it's just, it's too dark. And I do like the uh, the white canvas ones. They let in so much more light. It's so much more usable, especially in the daytime. Yeah. And uh, I, I would prefer to have one, but I'm just, it's too much money to outlay. It's a big expense, but you know what? If you're going to do a lot of winter camping, it's definitely... Oh, I agree. I mean, it's definitely worth the money if you're Absolutely. going to do a lot of winter camping. But if you're going to use it once a year sort of thing... It's not worth the expense. No, it's something you save up for and buy in a few years. And, you know, same with the, the stoves. I mean, the stoves themselves get quite pricey. Yeah, you know? I, I did lay out some money for a new stove. A guy from... Uh, oh, I can't remember what state. But anyways, he makes them by, by hand. 
and uh, I bought one of his stoves off of him. It's a nice little stove, but it was it was fairly expensive. It was more than I normally would have spent on something like that. But the yeah, one that I have a cheap one. The flue in the vent is too small, so it you get some smoke that chuffs back into the tent. So I went and got something that's decently shaped, size, and designed. Well, you have something against inhaling smoke all evening <laughs> while you're trying to sleep. Well, my old one, every time you stoked fire, it's like you'd fill the tent with smoke. It was very nasty. It was uh, it was hard yeah. to deal with. But that becomes an issue, you know, unless you want to die in your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, you know what? It's been a bit of a different week. Been things going on at work and changing around and uh, just busy, busy, busy. A lot of late nights and early mornings it takes its toll on you where you're just at the end of the day you just don't want to do anything but yeah i think i'm already going through a bit of the withdrawals because i haven't you know a few of the plans i've tried to get out on the water just haven't happened and i'm going through a bit of withdrawal right now um it, it happens you you know you make your plans but one thing falls through another thing falls through or things come up and you got to change it and it's a hard time of year to go solo paddling because of the risk with the cold water. Yeah. And like, like in the summer, I could just up and just go paddling, right? But I'd be, if you're trying to organize with somebody else, it's like, oh, not this weekend, maybe next weekend, yada, yada, yada. But if you're on your own, warm water, warm weather, you just, I, I would, I often just go on my own, just go for a quick paddle. But this time of year, it's, I don't, I prefer not to go solo. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've actually had people contact me asking me about the canoes I'm using and they're looking at doing, you know, and, and one of the ones they're asking about is the, the Osprey I have, the Swift Osprey. It's a solo canoe mm-hmm. and asking how I like it and how well it works and, you know, multiple questions on it. But I'm thinking, well, are you getting it for this year? You're looking to go now. Are you looking to rent one Yeah, and try it? Because yeah, I, I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd be going solo this late in the year. Uh, well, I mean, it's November, but, um, Definitely want to be, if you are solo in your own canoe, you definitely want to be with somebody else. Yes. You know, I mean, that's what I used to do in my uh, October trips was, um, started out as a solo trip and then I have a couple other people wanted to join and I said, well, fine, but everybody's got to be in their own canoe. So we had like three or four canoes going with us and, uh, but eventually that sort of changed. I caved on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. You guys can partner up and do the tandem canoe. I'm still taking my solo canoe. And then eventually that became four people, two canoes. And, you know, you were on one of those. When we went to the uh, east side of Algonquin Park. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, everybody congregated here and we threw all the canoes on your trailer. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. Barron Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. Brigham Lake. No, that the, I wasn't on that one. Mm-hmm. The Husky, the 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 Great Dane. Oh, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, the yeah. middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. were on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Father's yeah. Day it was it was your Father's Day trip, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. They all ended up being everything. No one does the solo thing, it seems anymore. But uh, I still do. I have my Osprey. I love to get out in that. What's the length of your Osprey? Yeah, what fifteen feet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice little boat, that's for sure. Um, nice light carry. You can carry your pack, you can carry that, and just boogie down the portages. I was, uh, you know, uh, Joe Robinet, the, uh, he's he does a bushcraft channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. he's He's got a swift pack boat. It's a 13.6 pack boat. Yeah. And uh, he just, he put out a, uh, his most recent, he did a review of it, and I think he released a video today. Anyways, it's a nice little canoe. It, it weighs like 24 pounds. Yeah, they're, and they're quite And it's 13.6. It's a great little solo paddle boat. And uh, and I've I've seen him use it throughout the summer. A lot of his videos, he has the little swift pack boat. It's uh, it's It looks like a nice, it's got a, like a little kayak seat. It's got the little foot pedals. He he called it, uh, he said it's it's a half canoe, half kayak. It's sort of a kayak hull with the open top type thing. Yeah, it's between the Osprey, the pack boat and the Shearwater. Those are the three swift solos that everybody tends to uh, yeah. gravitate towards, right? Uh, but yeah, I went with the uh, the Osprey. I had a chance to use one first um, and enjoyed it. And like I said, the main thing in my issue was what happens when the big winds come up. Oh, and this thing yeah. likes to turn into the wind, the right. Osprey. Yeah, yeah, I find it likes to turn right into the wind. Well, that's good, I guess. 
Not when you're trying to cut across a lake across the wind. No, but if you're <laughs> if you're always if it always turns down away from the wind, that would be a pain in the butt. Yeah, yeah. This if, thing. If you if you turn into the wind, you can almost sail it into the wind. If you just kind of rudder it with your paddling, you could use the side as a sail. I always I used mm-hmm. to have a uh, a cedar stripper with a huge uh, keel on it, and I used to sail that thing across lakes. I used to just cut it into the wind, and the wind would do all the work, even headwinds and stuff. It was pretty cool. Yeah, this thing this thing is not as bad as I thought it would be in the winds. But like I say, it always wants to to veer into the winds. Mm-hmm. But if you get that right angle, oh, it just sails like there's nothing, yeah. you know? But uh, yeah, those are the three anyway, the sheer water, the osprey, and the pack boats that uh, t- people tend to tend to look at. But my thing with the, with the pack boat is you might as well go kayak at some point, right? Well, with a kayak, you're, it's a bit more of a pain for packing gear, right? With yeah. the, with the canoe or with the pack boats, it's, um, you can still just throw a backpack in the back and, and you fit all your uh, other day gear in the front. So with a, with a kayak, it's, I, I, I've never portaged a kayak, so I have to claim a little bit of ignorance there, but I've seen videos of it and it looks like a pain in the butt because you have to unpack all these individual pieces of gear, your, your, your food, your sleeping bag, your, your stove, yeah. you know, all that into a bag and then you portage it. So at least with a pack boat, you can leave everything packed in the bag. Yeah. The kayak is a lot uh, more time consuming. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. now what's your opinion on solo canoes with a double bladed paddle? Uh, I tried it once. I don't know. It's... I'm more of a traditionalist. I'm not against using the double bladed paddle. I am. And I've tried it myself. It is, it's a little bit more convenient, but I'm just, I'm used to using the, the, just the standard canoe paddle, but I've seen people use the kayak yeah. paddle and, and, uh, Joe Robinette, he, uh, he does the, uh, double bladed, he does the kayak paddle and it's, it's really quick. You can, you're tracking, you're not switching sides and, and whatnot. So it seems a smart way to go. You hear some people with strong opinions on it. I don't really care one way or the other, but I just haven't done much of it. I don't think it should be done. I think it's an abomination. You just said you did it. <laughs> no, I've never done it. No, no. You know what? Yeah, like you say, it's it's your own preference. Yeah. When I see somebody with, and this is just not really a that's why they're doing it sort of thing. This is just the way it appears to me. If you have a double bladed paddle, to me it's like you're trying to get somewhere quickly. But if I'm in a canoe out for the day, I'm not in a hurry, mm-hmm. right? And to me, the double-bladed paddle, I don't know, it just sort of gives the mindset that you're in a hurry and you're trying to get somewhere fast, straight, boom, 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 point yeah. A, point B, that sort of thing, right? Now, I would, I will say like this, remember uh, when you did, uh, what was the, uh, the trip up north we did, you crossed the park, uh, the Brent Brent Run. run. So when you did the Brent Run, mm-hmm. uh, in and around the Brent Run, when we did a, a day trip, I was, uh, it was you and um, Smedlico, uh, uh, Scott Rogers. So it was you and him in one canoe. It was all, it was, I was solo in my 14-footer, and I was struggling to keep up with you guys. And, and I tried a lot of different paddle positions because I just couldn't, when I was I was paddling really hard to keep up with you guys, and I was having trouble tracking until I I keeled it way over, and I was like just like uh, uh, what's his name? All the videos he has, Bill Mason. Bill Mason. So you see the Bill Mason method of paddling. So I was doing that, but the whole time I'm thinking, man, I wish I had a kayak paddle right now. Yeah. Because then with a kayak paddle, you're not struggling to keep uh, your steerage and your headway at the same time. Like with, so with kayak paddle, you can steer and paddle strongly the whole time. Whereas with a canoe paddle, you're switching sides to, to help maintain your, your, uh, steerage way. Right. Yeah. I think I'm just, when I get in my canoe, I try not to be in that much of a hurry. I mean, yeah, I guess there's going to be times that you need that speed and whatnot, but. But on that day, I was trying to keep up with you too. Well, it wasn't me. Well, okay. I was behind everybody. So Scott was, well, who's in Scott's boat? Mikey. No, uh, Marcus. Oh, so it was then Because it was phone? Marcus. Dorothy had her kayak. No, oh, they yeah. were towing the kayak. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it would have been Mike and Smedley in one. I th- yeah, I think that's what and it was. And then I yeah. was way behind him so, I because I had my new. you showed up late for yeah. that trip. You were, yeah. you were a day or two later on. Yeah. So it, well, yeah, it was Mike and Scott. 
Yeah. And I was because just tootling along I was, on my own. I was battling so hard to keep up with them. Yeah. Yeah, too, everybody was in a hurry to get back to yeah. to the uh, and the vehicles. And I was like, okay, well, see you guys there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that day. It was before the Brent run happened. Oh, before the Brent run happened. Yes. That would have been Mike we, and, we did, and Marcus we a, then. We had a spare day and we did a day trip out and back. Right, 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 right. That's right. We yeah, because you loop. guys had that day between the Madawaska Canoe Center and... And the Brent run. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, you know what? Like, I guess there was, there's pros and cons of the double bladed, but when I'm in a canoe, I'm not there to be fast. I'm not there to be in a hurry. If I oh. got to keep switching sides to track properly or keel, I look at that as learning new techniques and, yeah, I you know, stuff agree. like that. I completely so, agree. But again, but again trying to keep up with someone. Yeah. There's, yeah. You see people in those solo canoes and they just sit on the bottom or sit with... And they get that double-bladed paddle going and straight mm-hmm. down, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. But I've had a few people ask me about my Osprey and how much I liked it. And I think maybe they'll be uh, picking them up because there's a lot more people looking to get the solo canoes. So whether that leads into solo canoe tripping and I, I don't know. But I've had a few people talk to me about them. And I remember a few years back it was... Uh, I think Mark Rubino organized it and it was like six guys. I think you were one of them. Everybody was solo. It was like six guys and six canoes all solo. It was, this was, must've been eight years ago. I remember it was a big solo. It was a while back. Yeah. 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 That's the way to do it though. Mm -hmm. It's something totally different rather than everybody, you know, tandem canoe, get your own canoe, paddle, (laughs) paddle your own canoe, do your own thing. And you can do your own time. You can stop and fish if you want. You're not asking somebody else, hey, do you want to do this? Yeah. And I mean, we've done that on trips where, you know what, like you see some, some people cut straight across the lake. Other people like to check out the islands. I like Other people like to do the shoreline. I like doing a shoreline. It it, it differentiates between everybody. And I mean, with the kayaks even, I mean, they're great for dodging through islands and and stuff like that, right? Or. Um, big waves, if you're going up the big lakes and stuff like that, you get something else, you know, different experience with the kayaks, mm-hmm. right? So it, it all depends on the the body of water yeah. and, and whatnot. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoy getting in the canoe solo and, and paddling. And just taking your time. Yeah. Be it my solo canoe or, or, you know, like the prospector and you just, you know, sit in the, in the bow seat backwards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what right? I do. That's yeah. how, Yeah. Yeah, and, and paddle it that way, and uh, yeah, you can do what you want. You don't need the, the extra partner, unless, of course, you're trying to put the canoe, big canoe, top of a big truck. Yeah. <laughs> Some days that's an issue, but <laughs> yeah, you have fun. You go out and do what you want. But um, speaking of canoes, uh, we're talking, I was talking with somebody at work, and they're like, just, you know, I mean, just passing the time talking about canoes and and say, so, you know, like canoes have been around forever and whatnot. So I started looking up some stuff and talking about the history of the canoe, where it came from. And we touched base on this on our very first show when we were up at the Canadian Canoe Museum, seeing all the canoes that they have there and stuff like that. Well, we just touched on it. Yeah, right? we touched on the history. But they start talking, we started looking up and stuff and seeing, you know, where canoes came from and there's some stuff that you can find on the internet and they talk about like 800,000 years ago. <laughs> like we're talking pre-homo sapiens. Well, imagine like like modern man and whatever it was uh if you if anybody is living near water, you're going to somehow create some sort of watercraft, whether it be a couple logs tied together or whatever. People need the ability to cross water. Yeah. To transport goods, to do something, to go hunting. For the most part, back in the day, it was, uh, it was hunter gatherer. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, getting your catch and bringing a bull moose, some here, or there, everywhere, going out, getting fish, whatever. People invented watercraft of some sort, one way or another. Well, and I mean, with these ones are talking about like 800,000 years ago, they said, yeah, there was land bridges and, and whatnot, but these ones that were hanging around the equator and all the the little islands and stuff, there was really no way for them to get there. Like there was no land bridges. Mm -hmm. So I guess the archeologists and all that have used what they've gathered to sort of 
put theories out or because they don't actually have watercraft or anything from that far back. Yeah. But they say they would have had to put something, whether it's, you know, a couple logs together or a log or something like that and, and tootle. And that's how they, you know, started spreading out across, across the, uh, the world that way. But they hung around there. But they've actually have, um, the oldest discovered boat in the world is three meter long Pesse canoe, P-E-S-S-E, Pesse? So yes. Yeah. I, I think that's our point. They figured it was constructed around 8,000 BC. So it was a dugout canoe, sort yeah, of. which would be 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's BC. But when they, I mean, that's the oldest thing, one they found. But when they're actually looking at different archaeological evidence. Carvings. There's etchings, rock carvings yeah. in Azerbaijan from 10,000 BC showing a reed boat manned by about 20 paddlers. You know, so that's 12,000 years <laughs> ago that they're actually seeing proof Insane, eh? of this sort of stuff. Um, and they say, you know, there's people that do say uh, hide boats like kayaks were used in Northern Europe as early as 9,500 BC. <laughs> so, I mean, that's over 10,000 years ago yeah. that, yeah. you know, kayaks and canoes have been around. So yeah, just doing some stuff. And like is it that we find that 8,000 years ago, you find that one canoe. Um, my big thing I'm looking at canoes is if you look at the banana stock boat uh, in Kenya, mm-hmm. for instance, because we're talking, you know, just saying, hey, you know, like everybody's got something, as you say. The Ethiopian papyrus reed boat, they actually look like canoes. Right, and well, another thing, if you think about it, it's... Uh a boat's design is going to be governed by where you are, your local, what what yeah. material you have. Like uh, like there, like Ethiopia and, and wherever it's like, you have reed boats, you have canvas, or not canvas, but, you know, like uh, tree skin and <laughs> or dugouts or whatever, right? Yep. So here in North America, there's a lot of birch trees. So it, it's a natural progression that, the natives, the North American natives, they would discover how to create, they need watercraft. So they, they created the birch bark canoe. Yep. Well, and they, they're talking other places, um, down in Peru, you get the single person boat, which is made of wooden stocks and stuff like that. And again, it looks like a canoe. Um, they would have the birch bark. They'd have just a dugout canoe out of a, a tree trunk. Uh, they would use fire um, to burn out the interior. Yeah, I remember reading, right? we were looking at the signage and stuff at the uh, Peterborough Canoe Museum, and and they were talking about the creation. They would just build fires in the log, and and slowly, like it was, in, they didn't have the proper tools to carve out the wood. So you would uh, set a fire, and then put the fire out, and you'd scrape out the charcoal, mm-hmm. and it's easier to to cut and hollow. I imagine you'd have to be careful and be cognizant of, of your birthing methods and or else you'd kind of go through the side. But it's a, it's it's an interesting method in the way they showed it to us, how they would burn and carve it out to make it easier. Because like like I say, back in the day, you don't have the tools like modern technology that we had to, that you could carve it out with an ats or an axe or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, they were, one of the places I was looking at here, we're talking about, um, before metal tools, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'd have like axes stone. and chisels made from flint and stone. Yeah. Uh, and the, and then the fire and, and whatnot. But I mean, all that stuff was being used about 12,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they know somebody would have said, hey, let's hollow this out. And, you know, as you say, in 8,000 BC, they found that dugout canoe from back then. Yeah. Um, wherever large trees grew, they could hollow out and then they throw uh like i say once you get the the original thing original design as it were you could add stuff like outriggers yes you know for rough water for ocean going for whatever for so you'd have something for stability on big water with uh where you tend to have larger waves i mean it was it was basic technology but it was still advancing so adding an outrigger to it would would be you know uh an advancement yeah. Um, coracles. Oh, They're just a coracle, a wicker basket, basically oh, yes. with a frame, okay. right? They were just, yeah, these round wicker baskets. They would weave 
and uh, around a frame. They would have leather as the skin sort of thing um, water, for waterproofing. Yeah, like a bathtub type of thing. Yeah, cloth and pitch. Uh, yeah, and it was just these round little one-man um, things that you could just sail out onto the water and do your fishing. or And that was a lot of it had to do with hunter-gatherer sort of stuff, like yes. you were saying, right? Uh, and then, again, where your geographical location was would determine. And in North America, South America, around the equator, everything seemed to go around uh, some version of the canoe. But when you hit the northern parts of Europe and North America, that's where they started finding the kayak. And I think that's also, it makes sense, that evolution of watercraft is it's, you're talking cold water, cold weather, mm-hmm. and you're keeping water off of you. You're keeping yourself out of the water. You can take waves without getting wet. And, and you're, you're, there's a huge danger with, with uh, you know, the ocean is a consistent two degrees, three degrees or whatever, right? So you're, you're protecting yourself and that's, you know, if you, uh, if you don't learn to protect yourself, you die. When the people who do learn, they've learned that kayaks save lives. So it's, it's a natural, it's almost like the evolution of man, of man, right? It's the evolution of the kayak. It's, uh, you need to protect yourself while you're out on rough, cold water to, uh, go and bring in the catch to survive. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a very instrumental and very important part of the, of the life. Uh, they're saying the Aleutians and the Inuit of the subarctic regions were the ones that developed and invented the kayak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, covered in skins, skins and, and stuff. And, yes. Yeah, because that's all they had. They didn't have the trees. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, up there. Yeah, uh, and it had to. They had it covered to include a spray skirt, which insulated the rider from the cold and prevent the boat from being swamped by waves. Because you know they, up there, there's some pretty massive waves when you're getting out on the, the well, ocean. And uh, I remember reading stories, they would actually avoid the heavy weather, weather, but just the uh, the when you're out fishing and whatever, just even minor splashes could be life-threatening, right? And, well, it's that uh, cold, cold water, yes, right? Yes, exactly. It's not like they only did it during the spring. Mm-hmm. You know, like they'd be into the, or sorry, in the summer, they'd have to do it starting the minute ice went out. They would be out on the out on the water in their boats and. Now you watched starting. the video of the kayak making radio right? thing. I think it was a, uh, a national film. Oh, board. on the national film board, yeah. What did they use for yeah. ribs? Did they um, use bone or was it? They were actually using some driftwood. Yeah. 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 If there was no driftwood to be found, they had to use like yeah. whale bones and stuff yeah. like that, right? Okay. Um, and then you get the sinew and the seal skins and caribou skins and and all that. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of work because it was all manual. Tremendous work, yeah. To, to build one of these things. Uh, but they're saying the Aleutian, Greenland style kayaks. Um, yeah, the Aleutians, the Inuit, like that's where they're figuring it all came from. And they're saying like 4,000 years ago, kayak means hunter's boat or man boat, meaning okay, it was yeah. for one person. Yes. And all it was pretty much used for was hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see the, car- they, they, they show examples, the caribou were cruising across these rivers and they would be sitting in the kayaks waiting. And once they got into that water, easy pickings. they were easy pickings, yeah. you know, and they had to be lightweight. They had to be fast and they had to be as stable as possible. Exactly. When you're, right? when you're trying to battle a 1200 pound thrashing elk or whatever. and Caribou and that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want <laughs> How much you know, do they weigh? It would be, wouldn't be twelve hundred. That'd be like no, a moose size. That'd be like five hundred like pounds, six hundred yeah, pounds. pounds. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not an expert on it. <laughs> Neither am I. But as soon as I said twelve hundred pounds, it sounded wrong. It sounded so, too big. <laughs> but there's, they say, when you look at today's modern kayaks versus what they were doing four thousand years ago, there's really not been. Much- much, much change. Yes. And and that that's comparing it to like a, a sea kayak. So, yeah. you know, the the open kayaks sit on top, so obviously that's different, but if you look at a at a modern day carbon Kevlar sea kayak yeah. or whatever, they have the shape, the length, and like the obviously in and if you were going to look at the specific changes, the 
the traditional old four three four thousand dollar kayak would be very narrow and pointy mm-hmm. and the the modern sea kayak is a bit more is a bit more thick in the middle but that's because we've learned to carry gear and camping gear and now nah, we got fat yeah we got fat <laughs> <laughs> so i guess that would be the basic difference there but yeah, yeah and the materials and that's pretty pretty much it now having said that there have been two and I guess this is kind of a battle when it comes to kayak people. There have been two innovations in kayaks over the old. It's the British style, which has a skeg. Yes. And the North American style, which has a rudder. Exactly. Which back in the day, 4,000 years ago, they didn't have either. Well, no, you didn't have the technology to allow this to be used or put in place. Yeah. And uh, the skeg, I think that naturally came about from from people from modern fishing with uh with schooners and whatnot so the smaller craft and smaller sailboats would have skegs or lift out skegs vertically lifting uh keels and uh and then north american design they they designed a uh a a steerable rudder for steering on big water for for tight water or whatever right so it gives you the ability and heavier winds to track better but when you're looking at this, 4,000 years ago, the kayak was, for all intents and purposes, came into being. Yep. Northern Europe, Northern North America, Greenland. And the skeg and the the rudders, they didn't come into being until the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, it's a very recent application of, of the technology. And so you can see that there is an evolution of, of the kayak, but different parts of the world have a different type of evolution. Yes. Right? Which goes the same as we, if we go back to talking about canoes, the same sort of deal is you've got the people down, say, in, in Africa, and then you've got the ones over in down in South America, and then you've got the North American natives. Yeah. They all have something that looks like the canoe. Exactly. But... You got the ones in South America using massive reeds and stuff like that. And the ones over in Africa using twigs and dugouts. Exactly. And it is, it's, again, it's it's what you have access to for construction material. Yeah. So it's, it's all evolving. Mm-hmm. They're all sort of the same, but they're all evolving in a different style. Yes. As opposed to what's available. And uh, you end up with... Um, like I said, the one we know the most as a canoe is wooden frame um, with birch bark or exactly whatnot around yeah. it, right? That's what we know. Uh, the ones that have been unchanged for thousands of years, as they say. Um, but it also talks, as the commerce of early North America grew, so did the need for canoes. Yes. And, and again, like if you look, and I think you'll find a direct correlation... Like all of the, the standard design was steady mm-hmm. throughout the history. And it's just in the last, like you said, in the 60s, 70s, when skegs and rudders came out. And then recently in the last 10 years or so, like, you know, they slowly over the last 20 years to 10 years, it was uh, Kevlar, carbon Kevlar and all these new technologies. And I think where that comes in is it's, it's playboating. It's people using finding new modern technologies and it's where people play it has nothing to do with the working history of the craft it's where it becomes a hobby it becomes fun it becomes people something that people do in their spare time right yeah well see and that's what i'm i'm sort of thinking is when you look at all this stuff when you've got this canoe that's been used for thousands of years the same way to hunt fish um get your family from your winter hunting grounds, your summer, yep. whatever sort of thing. But then when the Europeans come over and they find out how good this is, then all of a sudden there's large yeah, amounts of it. Be- everybody needs one. Technology shifts. Yeah. Uh, they actually started, the fur trade became so large, the French set up the world's first known canoe factory at Trois-Rivières in Quebec. Yes. And I mean, all of a sudden, they're starting to produce these things. Like, you know, and the technology that they had is, you know, okay, well, this is what a canoe is, but then they evolve it 
into massive Voyager canoes yes. and different, you know, that sort of stuff. We're getting 12 people paddling and 5,000 pounds, yes. right? So I think that's part of the evolution of, of the of the craft as well. The kayaks and the... Yes. Is the more people that need it. So you're building more and more. You're finding new and quicker ways to build them, more efficient ways to build them. When you have a and factory more uses for them. with... It, yes, and but also when you have a factory and you bring what... Maybe back in the day, you could still consider a brain trust of people together to create these watercraft. You get people bouncing ideas off each other. It's not some guy off in the middle of nowhere building a canoe with no input. Mm -hmm. He's building it the way his father taught him and how his forefathers have taught them throughout the ages to build. Now, suddenly you have people come together and creating new ideas to create a more efficient way to build it, more efficient machine, uh, heavier cargo, bigger size. So you're talking like 10, 12 people, 2,400 uh, kilograms, you know, a 5,000 pound payload with all these people. Like that's an incredible canoe. Isn't it though? That's, but you know what? And I think that's what it comes to is back in the, back in the day, everything was, you know what? This is all we need it for. Exactly. So it's not going to change. But you when only knew changes, how your dad built it. Yep. And then when the we need, oh, we need something for this. Let's build it this way. We need something for this. Hey, let's do this. We needed something for this. Let's change it to affect this. And I think that's sort of where we've ended up now Yeah. in, you know, the 2000s, where there's so many different ways, like the kayak, you know, it used to be, okay, let's just go fishing. And then as well, let's go for a little paddle. Let's go for a tour. Mm -hmm. Let's go play in the water, the rapids, and let's. Go. And all of a sudden, you got five or six different versions. Yes. Well, I'm just going to sit on this one and drop a line. I'm going to go fishing, right? And when they then from fishing, well, I got to get these bigger fish, and I need the more rods, and I got some cargo yes. space, and, and it really expands the type of stuff. And that's the mess we're in today. Exactly. <laughs> and I got so many different uses for It's where the demand comes from. And again, there and and we've talked about this craft in the past uh couple months and you see more of it changing. So, let's say over the last 20 years, we had inflatable rigid inflatable kayaks and canoes, uh pack boats and folding canoes and and so you had all these new designs, but now what you have is Everybody knows that if you're going to do on a backcountry trip, you can bring one playboat or one canoe. So now there is a need for inflatables. And these inflatables for 20 years were what was the standard. But now suddenly there's the technology. And you have suddenly in the last two years, we've come across at least four different manufacturers who've come up with a folding ultralight design yep. for a canoe. And so suddenly there's this giant shift in these ultralight packable canoes that you can take into the backcountry, where you're it's a fly-in camping or a fly-in whitewater trip or a fly-in canoe trip where you're limited in cargo so suddenly there's this demand and need for this technology and you suddenly there's this bloom this blossom of of new designs that suddenly hit the market and that's what we've seen this shift mm -hmm. over the last i'm gonna say 18 months to two years like and it's been big in the last six months to a year with with uh, i think we've both seen just in that short time two new designs come out yes so it's uh it, again it's it's supply and demand and and with today's technology with the way people are able to converse over the internet and you have Kickstarter campaign that and new designs here new designs there it suddenly creates a venue and ability to create this new this new market. Yeah, and I think you also have to kick in people are looking for something different. Yes. You know, they're looking to go farther afield. You know, they get tired of just going up the road or, you know, going to the family campground year after year since they were kids. They get tired of doing that. They want to see see the world. They want to go out to different places. And things like these, the, this new technology can let you do that. I mean, back, I would never think about doing massively long canoe trips with one of those Grumman metal canoes. Oh, absolutely not. But when I look at my lightweight canoe, oh, yeah, yeah I I'll can do, do that, that in a heartbeat. Yeah. Now when you got, yeah, I mean, one of the things we looked at, um, you know, when you, you got to fly in somewhere like really remote, like north of the Arctic Circle, when you need to take two or three canoes, I mean, you're, you're paying ten, twenty thousand $20,000 just to get your gear in. Oh, absolutely. 
Prime and then charter. more for your yep. people and your food. Mm-hmm. Now, when you got something that will fold down to the size of a large suitcase, exactly. and that's your canoe. So I mean, then, that's technology. Yeah. Just you know? a beaver with floats and you're into the backcountry and you're in. with like four canoes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's where we, we've gone from a dugout canoe 12,000 or 10,000 years ago to a foldable canoe. Exactly. You, <laughs> an ultralight foldable an canoe. ultralight too. foldable canoe. And I think also a, a consideration in this matter would be the fact that never before have we had so much uh, like... Uh, consumable uh, like extra money everybody everybody has back in the day with the rockefellers you had a certain small percentage of people who made all of the money yeah but now with way modern times have come and with jobs and with the marketplace and with the ability for everybody to make a, a larger income you have a lot of people with disposable income and of course in the last few years in the last decade or so there's been a few hits to the north american markets where the us and canada and europe but still you still have a lot of people with disposable income and they're looking for certain ways to expend that cash we're not uh, we're not Apple. We're not big corporations that stockpile billions of dollars. People spend their money. Everybody spends what they make. Live it while you can. Exactly. But you start looking at that sort of thing, and it branches off into different things like the stand-up paddleboard. Yes, yes, a brand you new. Know? Yeah, a brand I new mean, way to get out and enjoy the outdoors in your spare time. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't see any stand-up paddleboards back twenty thousand years ago. But no, uh, you never know. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. When did the surfboard become? Uh, that would have been uh, the forties and fifties, like the the you know you're talking Hawaii and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know what? You start looking at the technology and people wanting to get out there, and yeah, it branches off from the canoe and and the kayak, and they end up with a paddle board that you can stand up on and paddle, and you keep on going. But it's it's broadened the use of what it was meant for. Back in the day, it was used for hunter-gatherer yes. sort of thing. And now it's just phenomenal what a canoe and a kayak could be used for. And there's so many different versions of it and so many people using them now. It's, well, like you say, with the the foldable ones now, what's coming next? <laughs> I know, exactly. There's... You, 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 I've seen over the last few years where they've, uh, they've got these, uh, like CDs, but they're fully enclosed, shaped like a dolphin and they can go underwater for short mm-hmm. periods of time. That's common, right? But how are they going to do that with a kayak? Well, that's, and a canoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you mentioned surfing and so just maybe do a quick Google here. You, <laughs> the first described surfing was by Joseph Banks of HMS Endeavor during the third voyage of Captain James Cook in 1769. Surfing was a central part of ancient Polynesian culture and predates European contact. Really? I'm glad I Googled that. Holy cow, wow. I didn't know it was so old. Wow. That's, that's they surfing. were hip before they knew they were hip. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, it was, it was quite the, uh, the the education, I guess I would say, from a simple question of, you know, how long do you think the canoe's been around? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I got quite a lot of information and it's quite surprising. And we haven't reached the end of this line. There's, there's, we're going to be coming across stuff about this for the next couple of weeks, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. But like I say, when, when they're talking about these people putting stuff together and to, to cross... Um, because there was no land bridges like 200,000 years ago. Yes. And they're only, I guess, using their archaeological brains. They're smarticle particles, as it were. <laughs> that's, that's what my daughter says. You're using your smarticle particles. Um, they're, they're assuming or have their theories that they would have had to have some type of small craft put together with, you know, even it's just logs. Yep. To cross these islands. I mean, 100 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And they needed to cross somehow, and they did. So, I mean, they're they're assuming, like, the canoe and all that was, or versions of, are that old. Yes. That's something, man. That's that's a long history of, of a craft. Well, when you have land, anybody can walk, right? Yep. But when you find water and you don't want to drown, technology is going to come up, whether it's 800,000 years ago or 8,000 years ago or 800 years ago. It's, it's just a natural progression of finding some means to cross some body of water 
to get to what you need. And back in the day, it would have been for food. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's all about survival back in the day. Now it's all for fun. Yeah. It used to be for food and now it's for fun. That's exactly it. So, well, let's take a quick break here and uh, we'll come back and we'll sort of talk a little bit about something that continue on from uh, last week's show. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio. Whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. Hey, this is Sean Rowley of Paddling Adventures Radio. When out on the water, a bad map can lead to a terrible paddling experience. That's why when paddling Tomogamy, Killarney, and Algonquin Park, I've come to rely on Jeff's map. If you're looking for a waterproof, tear-resistant map with paddling routes, portage data, historical points, and much more, then go to jeffsmap.com and see the maps I use. Available in print or in a downloadable format, jeffsmap.com. Now, Derek, last week we were talking about uh, what paddlers do in the winter months. In the off-season. Yeah. When, Something you to know. keep yourself active, keep yeah. yourself fit, keep yourself interested. So I was just checking out a couple other things here because, you, you know, going what I'm going to do this uh, this winter besides going to the gym and stuff and do my hikes. I came and came across the Complete Paddler, which is a store out the uh, west Kipling side of Lake Toronto, Shore. right? Yeah, yes. Kipling Lakeshore Way. Toronto GTA. And they have kayaking, canoeing, and stand-up paddleboarding year-round at a heated pool, mm-hmm. indoors. So if you're looking to do some stuff over the winter, keep your keep on the water, you can. There's actually a couple things here. Paddling indoors over the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, looking at the Complete Paddler, they provide courses in kayaking, canoeing, stand-up paddleboarding. They talk about uh, introduction to kayaking, introduction to stand-up paddleboarding, introduction to canoeing. And this is all in like a giant swimming pool. Yeah. And what I think is perfect for these kinds of courses is that like normally in your in your season of camping and canoeing and paddling and kayaking and whatever, you don't have time to take time out to start something new unless you're going to be at somebody's cottage and they have a paddleboard or something. Mm-hmm. But where this is, this is ideal for somebody who it's in the off season, you've got a lot of spare time. Let's try stand up paddleboarding. Let's try kayaking or whatever. So they have an introductory course. You can get into something in the off season so that you're a little bit more anxious and excited for the upcoming season to get out there and do something that new. And and I think some this is often when I lived out west, I I did stuff like this. And when things got a little bit too cold, I I, I my first sea kayak open water sea kayak course I did in a in a swimming pool on on a military base out in Esquimalt, BC. It was great. It was perfect. I I got to learn. I did some rolls and stuff like that in nice warm water. So it's kind of perfect. It's a, it's a control environment for you to become introduced to the sport yeah and not only the complete paddler in where, where they do it but ontario sea kayak center they yes. actually have do the same sort of thing um rescues learn to roll sessions and, and everything learn um they do it in toronto mississauga uh in barry and even burlington the Aldershot yeah. pool. I, I was surprised. I didn't think they had so many uh, satellite locations. Yeah. So check out the Complete Paddler and check out Ontario Sea Kayak Center if you're looking to do some kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding, canoeing over the winter indoors. And if that isn't really up to your standards and you already know how to do all that. You're looking for something of a challenge. I came across the Welland Indoor Paddle Tank. Picture, from what I understand, it's a pool. Uh, it's left over from the Pan Am Games. It's, and this would be more if you're training um, to be, you know, like canoe racer, stuff like that, dragon boating. They have a big area, a pool, capacity to train in canoeing, kayaking, sweep rowing, skull rowing, or dragon boat. Variable speed moving water generated by six turbine engines 
capacity for 40 dragon boaters, eight rowers, or 24 canoe kayakers, up to 40 athletes, using the exercise space. This is such an amazing idea. Like you could get out there and paddle for hours, not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. <laughs> but you get your exercise. You, you, it's, it's the challenge of keeping up with the flow of water and it, with variable speed. So if you're going to do, say, off-season dragon boat racing, you could get four dragon boats off into the water and these boats could actually race each other. It's like tug-of-war type thing. You're not mm -hmm. moving anywhere, but you're actually being challenged. So th these guys are on moving water in a giant pool tank thing with moving water it's amazing it really is and uh, so check that out the welland indoor paddle tank if you're looking to do something over the winter um something different that's for sure and you can like i say check out the uh, complete paddler in the ontario sea kayak center if you're looking to do something um and that looks like that's yes yeah, the end of the show we've covered the, yeah we've covered a whole lot today that's for sure <laughs> And, uh, yeah, if you're looking for more, check us out on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram and you can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. Anything uh, you want to say to us, drop us a line. Until next week, I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time.